that's where we sync up. Go. All right, welcome to Prospero's Pit, everybody. I have become my worst nightmare. I'm using my family for clickbait. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, have sitting across from me my old man, my father, uh, Richard Staten. That's me. That's <laughs> yeah, me. That's, that's my dad. And, um, you know, it's not only on top of am I using him for bait, but he's also off four hours of sleep. I've been pumping him full of Celsius since he's got off the plane. True. He's jacked on caffeine, so we're going to have a, a ride of an interview. He needs sleep. <laughs> That's all I got to say. <laughs> no. not, not Richard. And I'm a pinch hitter because the previous scheduled person is not able to come. Um, excuse me. The, they don't need to know that. Oh. <laughs> no, you're, you're the prize fighter. Can you take that out? No, I'm just messing with you. Right. That's fine. You're, but, yeah, someone did cancel. Oh, well. First, actually, first guest to, to have for, something to else on the yeah schedule. something else more important than us, wow, um, but it works out perfectly because we get the heavy hitter Richard Staten here, and it's actually a great timing that you're in town uh, visiting your only son, <laughs> because the Writers Guild is on strike. Writers Guild. Is on strike. Yes. I hope people realize the importance of this strike. Yes. This is not a typical strike. Well, that's why I've brought you here, Father. Flew <laughs> me in. Right? Yeah, I flew you in to tell the people just how important this writer's strike here is. Because before you retired, which, how many years has it been now? I was at the Writers Guild of America West as the editor of their magazine for 22 years. Editor-in-chief. Editor-in-chief, yes. Yes, sir. And... Uh, yeah, editor-in-chief at Writers Guild Magazine. So what what, is, what even is the Writers Guild Magazine? It's a publication. They've always had a magazine or of some kind of publication since the Guild was formed in like 1930, was it 4, 33, something like that. And um, the Writers Guild of America West in particular has a, a, that tradition that it tries to honor. And when uh, uh, they got a magazine going, and I was leaving uh, another magazine. I was editor-in-chief of, uh, of Westways at the AAA magazine in Southern California. And then I went to the Writers Guild magazine. And it's um, it was a great, great gig, mm -hmm. a long gig, because I really admire and respect writers, especially screenwriters, which I tried to do myself un successfully. And it's really tough. Business, really tough business. Mm -hmm. And in my case, I had a hard time pitching stories without losing my temper. So <laughs> I admire the writers at the Writers Guild, WGAW, uh, for their patience and their intelligence and their their determination to get through the many blockheads they run into in the industry, in the film and television industry. Mm -hmm. Now, it's even worse because of the streaming yeah. folk, you know. Yeah, and they've been, I mean, for a long time now, but it's been, it's gotten ridiculous how little pay that they've been getting for the work that they do. Yeah, the streaming is making the monsters even mon more monstrous, but they don't share it. They yeah. don't want to come down, no trickle down, mm -hmm. no intelligent use of the talent they mm -hmm. have at their fingertips. Yeah, and just to put it into perspective, I saw somewhere, I saw it on Twitter, of a screenwriter was ranting, and he said between two people for a show on a uh, 
large streaming platform, they paid 30k to two writers to split. And after taxes, that's lower than minimum wage. It is. To come up with shows, just to clarify, if you don't understand, hopefully if you're listening to this podcast, you get it already. But there is no television show without the writers. Nothing happens before any script is written. Other than reality TV, which is whatever you think of reality TV, but... If you're watching, let's say, your favorite show like um, The Mandalorian or The Walking Dead or The Sopranos, that television show doesn't happen without the writers. Point blank, period. If anything, I think there'd be an argument to be made that the writers should be paid the most out of everybody on on any television show. But, um, obviously, right now, the writers screenwriters are just fighting for a livable wage right 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 um and so i want to talk a little bit about those blockades that you brought up earlier because on top of being paid just scum um they also have to put up with so much bullshit just to get on just to get a first a script to be picked up but also to just get on a job yeah it it takes a lot of determination and willpower and and they are start if they lose the writers these streaming i mean they don't know amazon do they know what a, a script is, comes from they do not understand the art of story mm-hmm. without story you have nothing you know even um, the game shows have stories mm-hmm. they they form a story when they're when they're they script and edit those into a, a shape that resembles a story mm-hmm. and it's very difficult to write a good story. You know, story is the backbone of, of Western civilization or even the all civilization, if you think about it, those tales that are told. Mm. When we started with the oral tradition, Homer speaking, the legend of Homer being blind and speaking, telling these incredible stories. Um, without that, civilization doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. It doesn't happen. The Dark Ages came when Everything collapsed, and there was no, ex, you know, extraordinary uh, Iliads and Odysseys and Decameron, and just it just all sort of imploded. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Irish saved civilization, as we know, by writing it all down, <laughs> keeping it hidden. Um, I, I just think that they don't value, they don't get what they have. They think it's just come to them. And, oh, look, look at all the money I'm making. Anybody can write. I write. I speak. Therefore, I am. I'm a story writer. And they just don't get it. And if that goes away, if the system that has been built, put in place very carefully, through strikes, I may add, collapses, they're not going to be able to put it together. And it doesn't reappear magically. So you're going to have no more wonderful series uh, where you can't wait till the next... Succession is right now the big hot ticket on HBO, and and there I don't know how large the writing staff is, but quite a few, and it's brilliantly written, and um, you would not have it. There's an arc. There's a there's a thrust forward. The story is moving towards its, uh, I imagine, tragic conclusion, and that's all because some writers figured it out, mm-hmm. worked it out. They go through so many options in a story room. 
how do you tell this story the best way? Mm-hmm. And they are the backbone of the industry and the backbone of all of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'll see. But I, my feeling is that probably won't won't go back to work at all for at least ninety days, and uh, and everything else will be kind of a fake fake negotiations. And they will uh, after ninety days, you can. There's a thing called force majeure. I think I'm not pronouncing it correctly, but legally they can drop shows, drop scripts. They don't have to pay writers anything. After that, they, they if they see things they don't think are going to make the money they expected, that they've given a lot of money to a writer or a staff or preparation of doing the story, they can just kill it. It'll be gone, and they'll see that as profit. You know, they, they'll understand. I mean, it's capitalism eating itself. Mm-hmm. You know. Oh, good. We'll we'll take that forest too, and the next forest, and we'll eat it all up. And look at the profit we're making. Mm-hmm. And of course, they're they're destroying themselves. Yeah, and, and us. Truly, and I mean, like you said it best. Um, everything that we know in society is based off writing, and I don't know how like important, like how we have to, how much we have to say it to tell you how important television writing is these days. I mean. Look at the conversation that it like has just sparked by like one television show. Like, forget politics, forget everything. Let's just talk about like say Star Wars. Let's talk about the Mandalorian. Every time an episode drops, the amount of discourse that explodes across the internet and across sound waves and across just communication is immeasurable. It literally brings families together. It brings. yeah, people together as as these writings, and and so that's how important. Like you said it best. I mean, the country's built on the Constitution. Uh, that's writing. This country is pre- uh, largely Christian, based off a book. Um, the, this is all storytelling. We all we we know the, the. If you've been following this podcast, you should. Your understanding of yourself, the name you give yourself, all your memories are just stories you tell yourself, whether or not they're written down or. Or just bobbing around in your head. Yeah, your memories, those are stories that you tell yourself. To to underpay these people is a crime, it's criminal, it's, uh, like you said, capitalism engorging on itself. This is not the first time that the writers have gone on strike. No, they've done it more than once. The most recent one happened in 2007, and you were in the middle of that. Well, I was on. Uh, the, I was editing the magazine at the time the negotiations collapsed. Mm-hmm. They'd come close to striking other times. Every three years, they have to renegotiate this contract. I don't know why it's so short mm-hmm. that time, but they. Um, that was a fascinating time, and they were. What was the big issue? Was the. Uh, uh, I should remember the. Oh, the digital world, yeah, social media, all this stuff that that was showing up online, based on their stories and their stories being reappearing, and and you, they were saying, oh, this doesn't, we don't know if this is going to make money or not. We don't know how to monetize it. We don't know how, why the writers need more for more work, and um, and that was a tough strike. It was a, it was a serious strike, but. Everybody walked the t- picket lines, and they had their signs. They kept making signs. They had strike captains who would command, commandeer the different writers in different areas, in front of Paramount or in front of Fox or wherever. Uh, they would picket where they would march their lines. 
And, you know, we'll, we'll wait and see if any of the other unions in Hollywood join them. And um, they better stick together, I'll tell you that. Like, why aren't the Teamsters? Well, shut down the studio. If you can't get food in, you can't get food out. Let's see how they do. Let's see how uh, Netflix works without product. And I, I just think it's all going to dry up. You're going to get really tired of repeating mystery series that you know the conclusion of. Mm -hmm. And um, and it's uh, it's sad time, yeah. in my opinion. Well, I remember um, 2007, uh, you can literally see the impact of what that writer strike did in television. Um, just by the television shows, like I binged um, Friday Night Lights yes, way back did. when, I when I was in high school, and that was a show that was airing during uh, through the the writer's strike, and that's season... already been written. Everybody yeah. understand this. These shows were written in advance, yeah, and re produced, and were not being done during the strike. Yeah, but that season that did happen during the strike, you see the quality. Just like crash. Oh, you did. Yeah, you did. It was like a different television show where wow. you're like, "Whoa, this is not what I've come to love." Like, what is what is this this show? It's just, it's just horrible. Like, it gets really bad, and you're like almost lose interest unless you're like chugging along, which I was doing at the time. Um, but yeah, I, I've like being a position. Your position as editor in chief is already like kind of a seesaw, teeter totter position because you have your image of the magazine you have your writer's images of the magazine and you have your subjects images of the magazine right and like balancing that is already kind of a but, an act but in itself we could go ahead and write and put out the magazine and we put out stories about the strike in support of the striking writers and whatever we could come up with to to make it valid but we weren't screenwriters and we could write um we weren't in the guild so that's what's so strange i'm in the building yeah in the writers guild building of course and third in fairfax but they um since we weren't in serious guild writers who had signed the contract with with the guild which i would do in a minute if i had written the script um we could continue working on the magazine and then try to do supportive things for for the, you know, the eleven thousand writers mm -hmm. we served, and um, and it got, there were days when you thought, is this gonna fly? I mean, if the guild goes under, so does the magazine, of course, and and it, it was more than a job by far. It was much more of a calling at a certain point. Although, it's always nice to get paid for what you love, mm -hmm. as the writers are trying to express. I mean. It, it's such a mystery to me why art isn't valued by the people that control it, that get, get it, because they're making the most money. They're controlling the purse strings. Mm -hmm. And and they just want to... I guess it's some kind of masculine entity thing, some, look, I'm bigger than you kind of thing. And uh, <laughs> I once flew on a plane, and I was sitting next to a uh, very successful corporate type. And... Um, I was talking to him, trying, I got him into a discussion about ecology and how if you continue to do what we're doing, the mel glaciers melt and the seas rise and the, and fires start everywhere. And and I said, don't you think we, maybe we could cut back and start doing something about the coal emissions? And that's why, shouldn't we do that? Isn't it in your interest? You got a family. 
And he said, oh, no, it's, I'm not worried about it. I said, how can you not be worried about it? He says, because we'll have enough money to take care of it. We'll have enough money, my family and my friends. I guess we'll go into some kind of bizarre fantasy thinking of what? A bunker somewhere? Mm-hmm. Oh, great life, you know? Oh, <laughs> we can go into that. We've I've I've uh, seen some stuff on these billionaires, millionaires holding these like meetings with top scientists, and uh, I forget what article it was. It you might have been the one who shared it with me, but there was an article about like a top uh, environmental scientist having this like intense meeting with a bunch of billionaires that he couldn't name. Uh, about like what's coming and he like realized halfway through this meeting that they were asking him all these questions not in like uh how do we prevent these natural disasters but in, in reality how do we survive these natural disasters and continue our business profit. yeah and profit, profit from them yeah yeah, yeah. i mean uh, it, you like you said earlier it's capitalism consuming capitalism and one of the biggest uh you know frauds of capitalism is that it's a it's a become it creates society into an individual game uh who can make the most money who can make the most profit um and so it quickly becomes a game of not us but a game of me and and then that's what you see is these billionaires first of all they don't see you and i as equals no not even human beings that's correct um and really it's now become a you know competition between the fraternity and who can get the most gold stars on the chart it's a fucking preschool game at this point um and that's what you see with the studios uh with netflix disney um paramount uh, all these studios competing uh to make the most money, to get the most eyeballs, to get the most views, and the way, as the game goes on and continues to chug, you are looking at, okay, well, what corner can we cut now? What corner can we cut now to get ahead of the next guy? And it always comes down to, um, you know, the one, the artists, the artists who actually make the work, and uh, the writers, and and they are always bear the brunt. But to reel it back in, I'm curious what that was like as a journalist who love obviously you've written um uh, you're a playwright as well mm. and you've written a couple plays um never a screenplay but oh i've written them but they weren't made <laughs> yeah, okay the plays were made or produced to me forgive me um <laughs> but yeah so as someone who is a great consumer of uh, media and also um you know you're a fan of We've, we've watched The Sopranos together. Yeah, we watched all The Sopranos. <laughs> yeah, we watched all The Sopranos. We watched all The Game of Thrones. Yeah, um, yeah. That was I, great. I can't have think. But we, you know, we especially during COVID, we were watching so many movies, a lot of Italian movies. Um, and a lot of uh, Ravens games. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, that's besides the point. Besides the point. Right. Um, you're, you're turning them against me. They're gonna, you're going to expose me. Oh. On, on, on the Chiefs. My Kansas City <laughs> listeners. Hey, man, you were... Thrilled when they won. <laughs> true, true, true. But uh, I was thrilled for, thrilled for the city. Um, but, uh, yeah, what was it like as a journalist covering um, people that, you know, admire in a way during, like, such a difficult time and getting, it like, the story right? Right. I, I try to educate. You try to give them tool to work with. The magazine should be a tool. That has information, but not a technical kind of manu- uh, manual. It should be. You get that inside the story. You know the story you publish. You you try to uh, 
lace it with information they need and you think they need. And but in in interviewing these people, I mean, they're so intelligent, Juan, and um, and they have to be different. They can't. They have to be able to structure in their minds intellectually a plot, uh, a way to make believable these things but at the same time they have to be able to empathize with human beings that's where they get that may be their downfall because they're not cold-hearted uh, bureaucrats trying to figure out how to exploit the person across the table they are um, artists who empathize i mean that friday night lights could not have happened without empathy for those young players in texas playing football um the families, the coaches, the community. that was empathy. I mean, you have to empathize. And sometimes I wonder if these oligarchs can, I, I think they've lost the, the, the ability to empathize with other human beings. That's very lonely mm -hmm. for them, but I'm not going to feel sorry for them either. I mean, look at what's going on with Murdoch and his family and the, with the suit that he lost. He had to settle because they were deliberately lying, uh, creating a false narrative about the election, mm -hmm. which Biden won. Mm -hmm. And um, he had to, uh, he, I don't know, it's its like not even King Lear because he wasn't a, uh, a, a great leader ever, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but anyway, I, I don't know. The writers are empathy, empathetic good ones mm -hmm. uh, you know and I'm always fascinated to work with to interview these people because they're so well versed in everything mm -hmm. and they know so many things I've, I had, had a part-time job on top of my guild job uh, at a company where I was the, the corporate leader of this company small and very interesting company entrepreneur created it he wanted his he felt his they were very good at everything they did, but they couldn't write. Mm -hmm. They couldn't. They weren't articulate enough. He wanted them to learn how to write, so he asked me to run this seven-week course, you know, and, and just help them figure out what writing was about. And a couple of times, I think the most successful classes, if you want to call them that, um, were when I brought in a screenwriter I respected, who often, because of me, agreed to do it and give a talk. I mean, they were like, evangelists mm -hmm. they were full of energy they, they just the people couldn't believe it i remember the the uh guy who owned the company and he created it came to me afterwards and said can we get him back i want there were not enough people there it was just the people from the class i there are all these people i want to have in here and I, that was inspiring and this and that and i said yeah it was but he doesn't have time to come back here he did it as a favor to me. Don't forget it. And I'm glad he did it. And I'm glad you guys learned it and got exposed to some astonishing information, you know, and the way writers work. Mm -hmm. And it's not um, magic. Yeah. Although sometimes I think at the very end, <clears throat> when they make that last leap, um, and, and you, when you're watching the series, you go, what just happened? Mm -hmm. You know, that that might have been magic. Mm -hmm. Might have been. Oh, let's do that. You yeah. Know? Well, the, I think like you were saying how you had a part-time job as as well as being the editor in chief at Writers Guild. That's what you find with um, a lot of writers is that they have part-time jobs. They have they they're not only are they writers, but they're actually they're a lot of the time blue-collar workers as well. Mm -hmm. And that's why you see this empathy. You see this like ability to community to build community through 
television, film, uh, books, literature, magazines. Um, it's because they're literally living amongst us. They're living with us, and it's a labor of love. They see the way these people. They they see the way blue collar workers live their life, and they see beauty where capitalists see profit. Writers see beauty, and they want to put it on a paper. And they, it, it, like, like I said, it's a, a language of love, and um, and it takes. It's since it's a drama, you need, in my opinion, more than one. Or that's the value of a, a writer's room. You have like eight writers in there, banging their heads against the walls, thinking up ideas, mm-hmm. throwing ideas around, and um, using a lot of past experiences, their own yeah. personal experiences. Yeah, that helps. Or the, or research. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, look what I. They're doing over in Russia. Yeah, right. Check this out. Um, and I, it's not just blue collar workers. I mean, you know, uh, they're they're identifying with the very wealthy too to make it dramatic to expose. You know, Succession has got. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it originally began as a Fox uh, a thing about Murdoch and Fox, the studio, and it. You know, they couldn't get away with that legally. And they changed it into what it is today, which is a better story. Yeah. And um, four seasons. I mean, what is it? Ten a season. I mean, I think it's ten ten episodes a season, an hour. But each one of those are so carefully crafted, and you and the insights into these human beings that are suddenly given the mantle of of millions. Mm-hmm. Are, it's not easy. It's yeah. not for them and for the writer. It's it's difficult right. to live and to achieve and to scam the game and be able to get the money through graft and lies and cheating mm-hmm. and stuff yay you but what do you have at the end mm-hmm. you know and you'll say oh well i got this mansion and this place and this yacht the super yacht and bigger yacht yet and bigger yacht yet and um and it's crazy it's really crazy there's a wonderful story um, I learned from the novelist Joseph Heller, mm-hmm. who was also d- dabbled in screenplays, and I that's how I knew more about him. Catch-22, right? Yes, he yeah. was the author of that brilliant. I read it in my senior year in high school, I remember, during the foot, the assembly, and I was on the football team, and the coach looked over and said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm reading this book. He said, what's the book? I mean, the band was playing, and <laughs> I said, Catch-22, and he just looked at me like it was crazy. Maybe I was, but the <laughs> fact is, that was more important to me than winning the homecoming game coming up at the time, mm-hmm. and we won anyway. But the uh, Joseph Heller and uh, uh, Kurt Vonnegut, who was also in the Writers Guild, I got to talk to him. It was fun. To do. Oh, what? Yeah, Kurt Vonnegut, Slaughterhouse Five, et cetera, and be on the phone with somebody like that, and you just go, "Is this really happening?" Mm-hmm. Um, and he uh, he told me about this time that he and Kurt Vonnegut and Joseph Heller were at this big man- mansion, huge party for the very impressive with everything you could imagine, bands and probably the Rolling Stones were hired to be there, stuff like that in, Long Island, in a Long Island uh, setting, which was a lot of mansions. Mm-hmm. And, um, and Vonnegut turned to Heller and said, doesn't, doesn't it just drive you... You know, with filled with envy because look at all this guy has, and you wrote a classic of the twentieth century, 
Catch-22. And the profit from that couldn't be, couldn't touch what's happening here. And, and uh, Heller said, no, I'm not envious. I have something he can never have. And, and what's that? Kurt, um, Joe, what, what the hell are you saying? He's got something, you've got something he can never have. I know when I have enough, which is astonishing when you mm-hmm. think about it. Of course, I don't have to go chasing the next billion. I can go fishing with my son, whatever, mm-hmm. you know. But, um, you know, that's, that's another thing I loved about the job. I mean, it's not about the strike or anything, but Hunter S. Thompson uh, was a member of the Writers Guild, and he had written this um, script. And he couldn't get. It. They couldn't. They weren't going to make it. And they weren't. And he was really upset because the it had been adapted, rewritten. A, a novel that he'd written had been rewritten by a, a young screenwriter. And he was saying, "Why aren't you paying him to this independent company?" And he was getting on him. So he wrote this great, great, and it was an underground classic in Hollywood. And I, of where he attacked the producer in no uncertain terms. And if you know Gonzo journalism it was brilliant and and very abusive i don't know if, know if they'd allow you to do it today <laughs> you know they'd probably hang him but uh it was just would hunter s thompson be canceled you'd let me know <laughs> <laughs> he, he could be uh but but Can't the thing was s. Thompson. he had bad he had a i i really admired that i thought it was so funny and also because it led to the film getting made his he this letter this memo he sent to the producer and he um he got his assistant got a hold of me and says we're having hunter has all this dental problem <laughs> and and he he can't get the insurance to cover it he's, he's trying to get the dental insurance going and what who do i talk to about that and so i told her and um and it worked and then i he, i got another call and she said, Hunter is really grateful for this. His toothaches have stopped. And she said, He'd like, what would you like from him? What can he do for you? And I said, would you please let me publish that, the original, with all the scrawls, and it went uh-huh. full page in my magazine. And he told her, that guy knows what he's doing. And so I did. And Michael Mann, to my, who's a great director-writer, uh, one of the best, he had done Last of the Mohicans is mm-hmm. one, Miami Vice, uh, just brilliant guy, and um, I went in to interview him over some project. I forget the writer and he had worked on. And above his desk, behind the wall, was that page framed. Wow! And so I said, I, "That's my purpose here. I've achieved my purpose here." <laughs> That's amazing. I have that framed as well. I know. I, I gave you it to you. It. Framed. It. <laughs> yeah. One of the best uh, things that I own, I think. Um, it's a classic. It's just him scathing some horses. And it worked. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you helped Hunter with his toothaches. More importantly, probably. L- which is mind. legendary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but things like that was made the job great and made me appreciate the writers even more and made me just really angry about the way they're treated by Mm-hmm. You know, the so-called oligarchs. And you're right. I don't think they see us as human. Mm-mm. You don't have enough money. Yeah. You, you can't do it. What are you? Right. <laughs> and, and in fact, uh, a sidelight is uh, when, when we had you at, at the hospital at um, uh, Cedar sinai in Los Angeles, uh, <laughs> I was listening. We had the doctor, the, the guy who delivered you, uh, the doctor there, and he was talking to, 
some other people as we were waiting for you to be born. And um, my bad, my bad. <laughs> I, had, I had a couple things to finish up. <laughs> and he uh, and the, the these guys were talking. He said, "I went to this fundraiser because the um, hospital is tied into Hollywood a lot. There's a building named after Spielberg, for example. And guess why? And um, Spielberg built it. Mm. You know." And um, he said, I was, I was, we were at this party, this auction thing, and everybody's saying, God almighty, and they're all rich. And he said, they were saying, look how much money Gates has, Bill Gates of Microsoft. Did you see how much money? That's money. That's rich. And they're like, okay. Ah, uh, what can you do? But um, long story short. Ah. Uh, what can we talk about, man? <laughs> well, speaking of oligarchs, um, during COVID 2020, uh, you <laughs> went into this spiral of Donald Trump <laughs> Russian. Well, I mean, it's been proven. They, they don't want to believe it. But yeah. uh, I, I, I couldn't get anybody at the Writers Guild to pay attention to me. They thought I was a fool and crazy. Mm -hmm. But I said, he's backed by the Russians. We've got the proof. There's, there's this all this material that I'd found had come in and nobody believed me. They all thought I was fool and crazy. Yeah. But we did also watch a bunch of great movies and well, stuff. And yeah. During the COVID thing? Yeah, during the COVID. But besides that, I don't want to forget. Let's not talk Foreign about films. The, the, yeah, yeah, a lot of Italian stuff. But um, one of my favorite things that I feel like I've been saying since, uh, like, I've had friends. I've always, whenever we're all hanging out, I always ask you to tell the stories of from your uh, from your youth <laughs> when you were on Hate Nash yeah. uh, in the '60s in San Francisco. Which, um, for you, those who don't know, which is if you listen to this podcast, you should know Hate Nash, a cornerstone of the counterculture movement in San Francisco, two streets um, where the Grateful Dead. Uh, just hippies, like so shoeless, hippies, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's bad. It was, it was Smelly, long-haired hippies, ages, man. yeah. On the street there. On the street, and you had a um, an apartment in one of those uh, Victorian San Francisco houses apartment. that are now millions and millions of dollars. Well, this is an apartment house oh, across okay. from all these Victorians on Ashbury. Literally, I went there. I got the place along with some other guys who we were students. Mm -hmm. I was going to San Francisco State. And we had all converted a, a uh, Victorian out in Richmond district of San Francisco towards the Bay Bridge. We're all living there. It's, uh, right away, and this is where I was going to go. to When I went to San Francisco State, this would be where I'd live on the floor, mm -hmm. uh, throwing a mattress down or whatever. And the owner came in one day for some reason, a plumbing problem or not, and we were out the next day. Mm -hmm. We were kicked out. She went for, she went ballistic and justifiably. And um, there were two, all those people. So... We went out looking for where are we going to live? How can we all of us be together? Probably not. And uh, this woman um, who had a baby named Jefferson Airplane and her husband who was in the Navy, he had been dragged out of their apartment down in Long Beach and put up in a, and he was going to go to the brig if he didn't accept the draft mm -hmm. and accept the naval. Uh, he was on a carrier that was then based in the Bay Area, Treasure Island. And so he... Um, that brought them up to San Francisco, and that's how they, we ended up knowing them. And they went off with with the baby in their arms looking for an apartment. And they went to this real estate office on Haight, and the guy said – the guy was thrilled because mm -hmm. he couldn't rent these things because it's too crazy around here now. 
and and here's a nice couple with a baby, and they get, went and looked at it and came back, and it was a the top two stories flat, two um, flat of a four or five, maybe six story building, and we had the top two floors plus the roof because mm-hmm. we could go out the bathroom window and go up the fire escape and be on the roof and smoke dope and be absolutely you know make love whatever, watch craziness. Watch the sun go down over Golden Gate Park and into the ocean, and mm-hmm. it was it was quite a magical kind of place. And it cost me eighteen dollars a month, which is even <sighs> more magical. Oh Can you imagine? God. Because I, um, because that's how I know it was one hundred and eighty a month, one hundred and eighty. And between us, there were that many people, and we sort of divvied up the whole uh, who cooked, who didn't, who it's washed the dishes. The who, heart of San Francisco. It's hard to believe. I know. I know. Well, it, it was a different city. Then. It was yeah. A, not anywhere close to what it was but and the irony also is that i went up there because i had fallen in love with the beat literature yes beat. i wanted to follow them and kerouac and yeah which you know, gregory you've, corso you've now cursed me <laughs> who is also now in love with the, the beats. beats yeah that you fought, you've been infected by those stories but uh-huh. i went up there and the beats were gone they pretty much last what was left of them in north beach was drunks mm-hmm. you know they, they drank too much and mm-hmm. all that bad stuff that came out of it but there was city lights bookstore and lawrence for Getty was publishing interesting poetry and stuff and that's where i would hang out a lot but uh so there i was in this flat and then we grew into san francisco state and um it was it was just a fascinating now i look back on it fascinating um, at the time, I was trying to figure out how to get a grade and how to get a student loan. Yeah. And they would hand out student loans like cookies then. <laughs> you know, it was like a gun to the bank. And I mean, people told me, you're not going to believe this. You walk out of there with $1,000. Mm-hmm. See, and $1,000 for a student loan in those days would keep you alive for a year. Mm-hmm. And if you need a little bit more, you go back to 500 So that was, I, I didn't pay it off to the 1980s when I kept stalling them and then I paid it off when uh, I got a job at the Los Angeles Herald Examiner as their theater mm. critic and they they tracked me down those feds <laughs> those feds figured out where I was well, but even with interest it was nothing right um, compared to today yeah no 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 no, no. Would, <laughs> never <laughs> happened today well, one of my favorite stories you've told me that I feel like really captures the space and the time was um, you one time witnessed this long-haired, no-shoe-wearing hippie running down the street oh, with yeah. a handful of quarters and pennies. No, they were pennies. Oh, That's pennies. all it took to yeah, do a bad. meter anymore. I forget forget where we are, um, 180 a month. Uh, but pennies running down um, the street with no shoes, with with the meter and, made and behind him. He, he had a whole <laughs> thing of pennies they kept falling, and he was going... He was laughing his ass off, uh-huh. and she was so mad, the meter maid, because he'd get there just before and put in a penny uh-huh. and keep her from and giving a ticket. laughing hysterically as he just, just outran the, pen, the penny. Uh... I don't think anybody noticed but me. You know, yeah. it was just another incident on Hate Street, mm-hmm. you know. And... It feels like that is a perfect metaphor that encapsulates <laughs> that time. But there are other stories that, like, I find unbelievable, like the turtles and the doors. And oh, then yeah. also... Um, your first time hearing uh, Janis Joplin. Oh, yeah, that's a good story. Well, when I first started paying attention to San Francisco and knowing I wanted to go to San Francisco State, I was at Long Beach State. And um, that's the first time I discovered the Grateful Dead. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I ever told you this, but the art department, we were dropping acid. Nobody knew what it was. Um, 
I mean, you know, the cops didn't know what to do with you if they stopped you. I didn't ever have that, fortunately. But I remember walking down the beach on acid the first time. And it was, we were getting it from Switzerland, direct. It was yeah. liquid. San, uh, LSD. Sandoz. It was, was it acid or LSD? It's the, it was LSD. I mean, that's what yeah. we called it, acid. Well, they're different things. Maybe now. Yeah. They weren't then. Mm-hmm. And the, and the electric Kool-Aid acid test, for example. But I was in Long Beach State, and they had a great art department with crazies in there. And, and the rest of Long Beach State was frat. Mm-hmm. Frat and sor- It was like I hated it. And uh, I joined a fraternity and quit a week later, just giving them my initiation money. And they thought that was hilarious. <laughs> and Because um, I didn't know what it was going to be. And then I thought, mm-hmm. long story short, as I'm um, walking down the hill towards the parking lot, and there's this incredible school bus painted in all these rainbow colors and just amazing. And um, and a crowd had gathered around it and was making fun of it. And its door was open and it illegally parked in the parking lot. And like the campus cop was writing a ticket. And I said, and he said, we, we, I, I got a flyer that was being handed out by somebody from the bus for the acid dance. Acid dance was going to be this weekend sponsored by the Long Beach State art department <laughs> unreal this is and i said what is this i mean i looked at it and the grateful dead were going to play some group from la group down there that i hadn't heard of the grateful dead and they were saying oh we're not gonna we're gonna cancel that dance that that thing whatever they're doing i said why mm-hmm. he said well, look at them they're illegally parked i mean until i don't know <laughs> and anyway that incident turned out to be one of the things that t- sent them up to san francisco mm-hmm. they weren't a, they couldn't be in la and uh, that's where, so I, I was, <laughs> I was seeing this one woman and um, getting, wanting to go to San Francisco, and my friend had gotten a Ford scholarship to the, Berkeley, my guy uh, had at, from high school, and he said, you got to come up here and check this out. So I said, yeah, I'll be up there, and I got her and her girlfriend, uh, we drove up together, and they had beehive hair, and it was like a weird blip in my life, and they uh, were so un- Unlike they were, they were lowrider kind of women, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just I was with them and shouldn't have been. And <laughs> we went up and stayed in this motel. And then I, I was looking around and uh, where did it happen? I uh, there was a there was Bill Graham. The two big powers in in the rock music scene mm-hmm. in San Francisco was Bill Graham and the Fillmore. He had done right. Fillmore, which is fabulous. And I'll talk more about that. And then he, and then there was the family dog, mm-hmm. which was a real true hippie collective. Mm-hmm. And um, and they would raise money and and they would put on band um, concerts in in Winterland. It was called. And so I said, I want to go to this. It's nothing. It doesn't cost very much. So we went, and uh, the, they were there, the two women. And then they said, We'll be waiting for you in the car. I said, What? And they left because they didn't want the they didn't approve of what was happening, and um, what was happening was there were all these chairs sort of pulled into the onto the dance floor, plus people dancing, plus there was a, a light show I'd never seen before by Jerry Abrams headlights, and this was a fundraiser for uh, uh, the, the Hari Krishna people mm-hmm. whom I didn't know about. They were the guy from India was there, and Gallen Ginsberg and all that, and they. Um, so bands played. I saw Quicksilver Messenger Service first time. Love they, them. They play. I saw uh, 
Moby Grape, which was a really good band live. Mm -hmm. They just never could cut it really as an album. And uh, Grateful Dead. And then there was a break while they did a chant mm -hmm. and, they, and led by Ginsburg. And I don't think Leary was there, but that, that Indian guy in his white robes and his long beard and everything, he was looking around as they were chanting, Hare Krishna, Krishna Hare. Yeah, yeah. And they were looking around at all these lights. And he was like, what the heck? <laughs> going on and um and so they ended and so the next band started setting up its instruments and everything and um and i'm thinking god the, the girls are out in the car I'm, that's my ride home and i better go and i said i'm just gonna see some of the next band and um they, <laughs> they this little girl i call her little girl she was short and she had hair that looked like it had been cut with a garden shears or something mm -hmm. like get this out of my face kind of cut and um and then she was she was saying was it peter she's saying peter the police are saying they're gonna sh shut us down if you don't hurry up and get up here i gotta play and finally this guy whacked out with his hair flying along and you know this is it came running through bouncing around moving between people and jumping up on the stage and they kind of strapped him into his bass he was the bassist mm -hmm. into his bass guitar and i was looking around and this little girl steps up to the microphone, and I mean, unreal voice. It just blew the over the top of these huge amplifiers. Just starts wailing. And and just she could, I never heard a voice live like that in rock and roll. Mm. And um, mm. so she, uh, anyway, I, I listened as long as I felt I could comfortably, and uh, then I went to leave, and I went out, and there was nobody on the street, and nobody in. The, I went by the box office and I said, "Do you know uh, who who was who's that girl singer?" And she said, "I don't know." The band had a girl, and I said, "Yeah." And I said, "Well, that must be Big Brother and the Holding Company," and she didn't know the girl's name. Uh -huh. That was Janis Joplin, of course. Oh, no. Next time I saw her, it was like, "Okay, this is Janis Joplin." At the uh -huh. Hell's Angel birthday party at Winterland, I went um, a Carousel Ballroom. They had a. You were there. Uh, at the at the Hell's Angels birthday party. Yeah, was Hunter there? He may have been. I don't know. Was he? He might have been writing Hell's Angels. No, it had happened. That oh, it already published. happened. Yeah, okay, no. okay. This was he was coming on to Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. That oh was god, that's that even. Uh, there we go. Part. Yeah. Plus, he was covering politics. Yeah. It was like he's an amazing journalist. Talk about a great journalist. Yeah. For the times too, and he. Uh, uh, and that was, they were giving free beer. Janis Joplin was singing and was down on stage. And she was reprimanding the crowd for not paying attention, but they were all stoned. And, and she had all these feathers. She looked totally different now. She was the diva type thing. And, and they <laughs> pushed up against the bar. I mean, there's all these people getting free beer. For, and they were, you're just supposed to get a, your cup of beer and go. And all these angels are behind there. They're, you know, mm -hmm. serving you. And all of a sudden, this guy's going, hey. I see what you're doing. And I said, I'll be back. And I left. <laughs> I was just knocking them back, right? Yeah. And um, that was an interesting experience. But that was after I moved to Cal to San Francisco. And, mm -hmm. and living in that place on Ashbury, half a block above Haight, totally accidental. I was going to San Francisco State, other people. We would um, be two stories. We would go out the bathroom window up the... Up the uh, fire escape and be on the roof and that was amazing and um 
people would be running down the street saying, every once in a while you'd hear them saying, speed kills, because when speed came to the street, that's what destroyed the street. Mm -hmm. I mean, that that stuff just changed. Just cha People in uh, an adjacent flat, I suddenly, I'd been, you know, some good morning, whatever. And then I suddenly saw them, and they were like paranoid and really skinny, skeletal type. Mm -hmm. Going in, they would been shooting speed. And... Um, and I don't, you know, I, the Grateful Dead were up about a block above us. And I told you the story about the time I was at the, they were in a Victorian. And they um, pig pinned their guitar, their best singer, in my opinion, and songwriter and at the time. And um, organist, played the organ and harmonica. And he was sitting on the steps of this Victorian house um, with this sort of bemused, in the sun, smile kind of thing, whatever, stupefied maybe. And this limo pulled up in front of it. And, no, you know, limos were not the, you didn't see them then. Mm -hmm. And they weren't, and certainly you didn't see rock and roll around them. And um, and I think it was the lead singer with the long hair who is still in the band. And I can't remember his name. I'm sorry. Um, came out of the limo and was shouting at Pigpen and shouting up at the windows of the house and stuff and signaling, and finally a bunch of them came out of the, not Garcia, but he wasn't there, I don't think, but the band members and their girls and whatever have you came out and got into the limo, and then they were all shouting at Pigpen, come on, come on, come on, let's go. He didn't respond, didn't mm -hmm. move, and off they went in the limo, mm -hmm. and he was still sitting there, not, not acting at all, uh, interested in any of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, contempt, I think, was part of his makeup. and. Mm -hmm. The there's um the time I was before I left Long Beach State for San Francisco State got to transfer I um the girl I don't know if you know Free Press was this great newspaper Free Press literally on the streets of San of L A great great writing great stuff anti you know and they had their birthday party their birthday party up in uh, on in um, that. At USC on, uh, what is that? It was a big, big old Shrine Auditorium. Mm. They've had the Oscars there and everything over the years. And um, they, um, my girlfriend and I, it just took us forever to get out of, you know, dressed right and everything because it was a rock and roll craziness. And they, we went up there and uh, <laughs> it was sold out. She was so bummed out. And you could see through the windows upstairs uh, on the second floor the mm -hmm. light show going. Yeah. And this is, again, before I'd seen a light show. And um, so I said, well, let's go to the Whiskey. Let's go to the Whiskey. That's a great place, I hear. And so we drove up to the Whiskey Go-Go on Sunset. And in those days, it was a go-go because the girls were scantily clad in cages. Mm -hmm. Imagine that today. Mm -hmm. In cages above the people at the tables and stuff like that, and a little tiny postage stage stand of where the band would play, and it was the Turtles and um, that night, and it was just like, oh my God, they're so, this is not what we play, wanted to do. We wanted yeah. to be seeing Frank Zappa, who was playing at the birthday party oh. at the Shrine. And, um, <laughs> uh, and so the band, you know, they, they sort of went away. They were just like, oh, the Turtles got all my... And the house band, the band that was sort of playing around them and playing there every night, no matter what band was there, took the stage and started 
doing their thing, and we were dancing on the postage side stamp dance floor up, and um, it was this guy, the lead singer, was had his eyes and face about a foot from the light, one of the lights up on the thing, and was moaning this enchanting kind of moaning, and it was hypnotic and brilliant and weird, and and we were like, my girlfriend and I were going like, wow, what? What? Who was that? And uh, um, it's really great. And the guy, the guy next to us said, yeah, they're really, really great. It's the Doors. They're called the Doors. Oh, my God. Are you kidding me? I know. I couldn't believe That's it. That's insane. I didn't know who they were, of course. But then it, Light My Fire came out, and that blew and everything you apart. Knew. And then you Everybody knew. Everybody knew. Yeah, right. But then we cut forward a year or two when I'm in San Francisco, and Speed is taking over the street. And I went, you know, people running down the street, and there was a thing, they were sending out flyers again saying, you know, big meeting, we got to stop the speed, we got to save the street, we got to save hate. And the Straight Theater was on, uh, <laughs> Straight Theater was its real name, but mm-hmm. was on um, Hate Then, and great place to see movies there. And we, we went, um, so I thought, well, I'll see what they're doing, because that's where they're meeting. And, and I went in, and... Um, it was just, it was out of Bedlam. It was out of the Middle Ages. I mean, people in rag, rags racing around, grabbing each other, jumping up and down, crazy. And everyone saw somebody up on the stage would say, speed kills! And everybody would be going, speed kills! Sticking up their fingers, and then it would stop. Mm. And they would continue. And and the, the weirdest part was this group of monks or priests or whatever they were, in no, novitiates, they were not mm. fully ordained in the Catholic Church yet, and they were going around, and they would look into your eyes, and of course I was stoned, and they would look in my eyes and go, I mean, they were they hated us. We were de- They were saying, out demon. Out de-. And they were scarier than these speed freaks. But a group of, um, group of them laughing and formed human chains and went whooping through the crowd and knocking people over and everything. And I looked at, and I saw a white fur coat coming in, and it was Morrison. They were playing at Winterland, and um, he was being given a tour by a true bohemian, crazy poet, brilliant man named Michael McClure, a playwright, and just just a strange guy. But he was he too was very comfortable with the with the uh, Hell's Angels, and he uh, had written a really scary book about one of the angels that he had friends with. He was like, oh my God, stay away from these people. And anyway, Morrison was coming along and he was trying to look cool and comfortable and hip, but he was looking around with scared eyes at this crowd. And um, and you could see that McClure was enjoying his, his fear. And um, this chain of people came crashing into them. And uh, McClure found it amusing, but he was just really freaked. And they all turned, the, both of them turned and left. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went and saw them perform the Doors, and uh, they performed with a great British group called Procol Harum, who did a. Um, this was at Winterland. They did a, a Whiter Shade of Pale. I don't know if you know that song. Mm-hmm. Great song, um, and they were modest hit makers. And um, they played first. That was very enjoyable to watch. Then the Doors came on, and he was yawning and acting. Morrison was just. It was towards the end of their. Uh, their whole thing, their power and stuff and impact. But he, uh, at one point, people clapped. Some people clapped and 
and and uh, he sort of clapped back at him and in a kind of tired voice said, "Okay, what do you want next?" And somebody shouted, "Procol Harum!" <laughs> I could see his reaction was not a happy one, uh-huh. and that's the route he was taking anyway. I could, uh, I could tell you a million stories about well, that. Time. Yeah, well, there's one more that I want to talk about because um, we talked about Hunter S. Thompson's Fear and Loathing, which is a little bit about the fall and the end of that counterculture movement and what the United States was left with. And I feel like you have a story that kind of, um, uh, kind of uh, reflects that as well when you had a run-in with the Mansons. Oh, yeah. I didn't know they were the Mansons. Nobody did. Yeah. But they, um, when Speed was taking over Hate Street and it was just getting all strange, and um, I uh, and my buddy Jim Veroff, who was this big six foot plus guy that I'd gone to high school with, and we hitchhiked, we decided we had to find a, a place to really cool out and get our heads open and just get away from Hate Street and the mm-hmm. craziness there. And the, maybe the drugs, probably not. And we went up to, uh, we hitched up. In those days, you could hitchhike. I mean, people just stopped and took, picked you up. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and I did, too, when I drove uh, back to L.A. I'd pick up people and talk and stuff, and it was just no big deal. And um, and we got to Mendocino, which is a little tiny then. I don't know what it is. I haven't been back. But um, little, little town, quaint, stuff like that. And we... Um, I saw this, uh, we said, where are we going to camp, where are we going to sleep? And we went down, there was a bunch of driftwood and logs from the river, the Mendocino River, that had been left on the beach. They were there, and um, so we we started bivouacking, I mean, digging between these logs, mm-hmm. place to sleep, place to hide our dope, right. place to hide our stuff so it wouldn't be picked up by anybody. Beach and, camping. And I'm standing there. And Jim and I are working on the setup, and I'm standing, and I suddenly, facing the ocean, felt this cold, I mean, really cold wind against my back, and against the ocean, you know, who could believe it? And um, I turned to see what, what why it was happening, and this black school bus, completely painted black, was going down Highway 1, went over the bridge to the, of the river, which was dry, and... Um, and kept going, and it was soundless. You couldn't hear anything for some reason because the wind was blowing. It should have been easily heard because the wind coming towards us, but it was just like a silent movie, like the Nosferatu coach in that silent movie about Dracula. And he, uh, Jim said, I said, wow, that was weird, as the bus went on up the hill and out of sight. And Jim looked at me and said, what was weird? What What's weird? And I said, never mind. Mm-hmm. Let's go. So we walked into the town to get some food for dinner, get some burgers. I mean, some some raw hamburger meat and stuff like that. Because Jim was the big cook, he wanted to make those cheeseburgers fine. And um. And there was this school bus, this black school bus, parked in front of the market. This little tiny pop mom and papa store. And its door was open, and it was all black, everything except the front window, the school bus. And um, I stepped up on the steps to go in and take a look. I was just really curious. There was, like, bones hanging from the uh, rearview mirror. Nobody was there. There were kind of, like, tents where the benches had been, and they used the benches as 
a way to form tents with blankets and so that, and it was just like really strange and I started taking another step in looking for somebody to talk to and uh, Jim was saying what are you doing and I said well I'm going to explore this and I said, it's not our bus we don't need to be here let's go and uh and Jim was a character, long hair. He was a Buddhist too, even though he was, six, he, he was studying Buddhism at San Francisco State. They had a great department in that field. And he um, always carried a machete, by the way. Mm -hmm. And those days you could hitchhike with a machete and get picked up. Can you think of, imagine. And he used the machete for legit cutting firewood, cutting this, cutting food. Mm -hmm. And um, it was just his, his little irksome thing. And um, so we went back to our place, and we built a, a little fire, and he was getting ready to prepare the food and putting it in the pan. And all of a sudden, I look up, and there's these three girls almost, I don't know how they got there that close, but they, they were coming towards us, and it was they were sort of ragged dresses and stuff, and they clearly were more hippies types that I saw so many of and uh, met so many of. And uh, their eyes were like this big, and I thought, my God, uh, they're stoned mm -hmm. and they were drawn to the flames of the fire <laughs> and they were standing there looking down at the flames. And I said come on sit down don't worry about it uh, just have a have a seat you want something to eat and they looked at each other and went oh no no we can't do that we can't we can't eat meat we can't do that and uh, you know Tex wouldn't like it and um, and I said who's Tex and lo and behold here I saw this guy in Levi clothes and coming over long hair and he, he comes up to the fire with the girls but I could tell by the way they stepped back he was the goddess of this group mm -hmm. he was the leader and he was a tough commander and they did what he said mm -hmm. and uh, we stand and we started talking a little bit and I said we, we you know we came down uh, we came up and they said what are you doing here These, and the Texas kind of accent and um, I said well I would just I didn't like him immediately because he was the guy who obviously t was a tyrant to these girls and they were totally intimidated and scared and um and he uh i said well we, we're trying to get out of the hay that we live in the hay and it was it's gotten really bad and i and we decided to get up here and get away from it and he said me us too that's why we're up here that's we came up here for that same reason we're in the hay and we came up here i said well you know and he said the streets yeah you're right it's gotten really bad and i said yeah it's a uh, it's speed, you know, it's, and he said, no, what? Speed, good speed. It's the, I'm going to say it, the no, 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 no. I'm, I can't say that, Don't the N-word. Yeah. And I looked at him in stunt. I mean, this was a so-called hippie talking like this. And mm. Martin Luther King, and it, w it was a great era of the civil rights, uh -huh. and they'd killed him already. I think it, by then they'd murdered him. And um, I was shocked. Mm -hmm. I couldn't just shocked and I said a couple I don't know what I said but I said stuff that wasn't he didn't like mm -hmm. and and they said well we better go and the girls got up and started walking away and as he went a little further I said um, I, I, where are you from I hear that accent and there's an accent he said Texas I said I thought so the south huh mm -hmm. in other words you racist yeah and he looked at me with you know anger mm -hmm. and I looked at him with anger and Jim was standing behind me fortunately towering over me with his machete just watching all this and I think that helped him turn around and continue his walk and he kept looking back at us a little bit and then disappeared among the logs following the women and uh, to wherever that bus is parked and uh, didn't think I just said what a 
weird time this is becoming. And uh, and so, flash forward, I've got my apartment in Venice, California, on the and a, a wonderful apartment, and I'm sitting there. Ed Sanders, a, a great musician and writer and journalist, had written a book about he was in the counterculture. He was mm. part of it. Written a, a book called The Mansons. Was it the man? The family. I think it was called The Family, about the Mansons. And um, I'm sitting there, reading it. You know, interested reading it because I was following the 60s and this was in the 70s. And I suddenly come across this passage that said, and so that things weren't working out there in San Francisco, so they were trying to decide whether to go to L.A. or up northern California. So they, he sent Tex Watson and three of the girls in this bus. Black, he had cut, painted black mm -hmm. and went up there, sent them up towards Mendocino. And I went, I mean... I felt that wind again on my back, sitting in that, my living room uh, with the book in my lap, because that was the, the guy. They went on down to South to L.A. and murdered. Yeah, did all the killing of Sharon Tate, and Labiancas, and the nightmare, nightmare that became Manson's yeah. legacy. But he, um, Ugh, I almost could feel that chill, yeah. that wind on my back. And I thought, you know, easy to kill us, and it'd be yeah. night. Easy. And you were fucking provoking them a little bit. You well, know? yeah, I didn't. Yeah, well, fuck them, but, you know. Let's fight. Like, you want to yeah. do something strange? Come on. Yeah. See what happens. Yeah. And um, uh, anyway, that that was, to me, the end, because they led to the, their murders led to the end of hitchhiking mm -hmm. in uh, California. Yeah. You couldn't get it to ride. Save your soul. Uh. I used to get them all the time. Yeah. Well, no, no. Wow. Well, that that one that one gets me every time. I I swear that's. Uh, you wouldn't be here if they yeah, had know, their way. I know. I know. And it was so easy. They got away with it in L.A. for a long time. They only got caught because he sent the girls for Armageddon. Manson sent the girls out to uh, the Death Valley <laughs> Desert near to mm. where we were, Tacopa. Yeah. One of them's buried out there, and um, he. Uh, he were running around naked in the desert in the heat. And the yeah. park ranger saw him and said, oh my God, they're going to get snake bit or sunburn or whatever. And yeah. he pulled him in and he didn't know what he had. You know. Yeah. He just thought they were more hippies drunk on speed and acid. Right. But they were, in fact, the Mansons. Um, ugh, After so murdering. Um, but uh, I want to talk a little bit real quick because I want to do, uh, before we wrap this up, but... Um, you I hope, said, I hope this is interesting. To no, this is fascinating. I've, it doesn't matter what they think. And to oh. me, okay. I think it's really interesting. <laughs> um, uh, but a lot more of these tales. Yeah, I know you do, and I've heard plenty. But I do want to say that one of the reasons that I'm here right now is because of you, um, here in Prospero specifically, because everywhere we go, everywhere we travel, um, you always seem to find a local bookstore. No matter where we go, like we're walking, me, my sisters, and my mom are walking. We'll turn around, and you're gone. We have no idea where you are, and then lo and behold, there's a bookshop somewhere nearby, and you're just like exploring the nooks and crannies. And that was kind of the reason we found Prospero's because I was coming back through after uh, graduate your yeah delayed graduation after the 2020 re COVID graduation that actually happened in 2021. Um, 
we came back and we came through Kansas City and we had like a couple hours before the flight. And so we were like, well, we'll just poke around and we found ourselves on 39th. And lo and behold, you found the uh, coolest bookstore here in Kansas City. Um, lost you, turned around, and there you are in the in the store <laughs> talking to Will. And you tell Will oh, that, yeah, yeah you talk, talking to the owner of Prospera's Will, who's been on the podcast. Um, and uh, you've managed to tell him that I've just graduated from uh, Mizzou. And, but it was 2020 and delayed, gave him the whole sob story. And Will get, uh, tells me that I can take a free book, any free book, graduation as program. a graduation gift, which was I ended up taking Walden's Pond. Good choice. Um, and uh, yeah, and so, th- and there's also even more crazy part of that lore is at one point my mom pointed at Prospero's and goes, well, why don't you just work there? Because I had been hunting for work since graduating, but like during COVID, the entire production, the entire... Everything had dried up, and so I was like really. You were living in L.A. I yeah. was living in L.A. back home, um, and with you guys, and uh, I couldn't find work anywhere, and I was really taking a toll on my my mental health. And um, I remember mom pointing at Prospero's and going, well, "Why don't you just work there?" And I was like, "Come on, mom, be for real. They they would never, hire. they'd never hire me. I mean, they're a local bookstore. Like, it probably takes like two people to run that, and whatever." And we went on our merry way. And now here we are in the basement recording a podcast episode called Prospero's Pit, um, which I think is is really cool. And I'd like to say um, that it's you that is the reason that I'm here right now. Well, obviously, but also specifically in. Prospero's. It's the reason that I have an eye for bookstores. It's a reason that I have an eye for literature. It's the reason I'm a reader. It's the reason I'm a writer. It's because of you. And so I want to say and your thank mother. you. And okay. my mother, yes. She's who will eventually hopefully be on the podcast too. Yeah. But um yeah, my my uh my the the curtains have been raised. I now everybody knows I'm a Nepo baby. <laughs> Both my parents are writers and so um, you know, my friends always say it's in my blood, and uh, yeah, you know it is. Honestly, it's an argument to make be made. Yeah, and um, so I just wanted to say that that there's no podcast without you. There's no me working out here without you and mom. So thank you. You're welcome. I our pleasure and our it's an honor to see you doing what you're doing. I mean, it's quite impressive to me. I don't know mm. how to do any of this. <laughs> it's pretty good. Well, or you know. It's all an experiment at the end of the day, but um, I'm thoroughly... Life is an experiment. Yeah, and I'm I'm enjoying mine, so um, yeah. thank you. But yeah, and also thank you for being on the podcast. I think I'll wrap honor. it there. My pleasure, you know? my pleasure. Um, we're fully here at Prospero's Pit and Prospero's with the zine behind us and Spartan Press. I want to say we fully support the Writers Guild uh, um, and their quest for... Fair pay. Living wage. Yeah, living wage. And so um, we support the strike. Uh, we stand with the writers. And, um, yeah, Maybe power, we should power to the people. Yeah, power, power <laughs> to the writers, too. Yeah, power to the I'll writers. Leave them out. Power to the people and the ones that tell their story. There you go. That's a good one. I like it. All right, we'll end it on that. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.